We're in the book of Acts, chapter number 16, and this message morning, this morning's message will vary slightly uh, from my typical style, but it should be fairly easy to outline if you are somebody who takes notes. So we're going to read Acts chapter number 16. Verse number 16 is where we'll start. And it came to pass as we went to went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed of a spirit of divination brought, met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out at the same hour. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers, and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prisons were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed." And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. He then called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the words of the Lord and all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized. He and all his, all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he sat meet before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. It is a great mistake when reading the Bible to look at the people in it as something special. We have a tendency to take men like Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Noah and Daniel and David and Elijah and Elisha and put them in a different category than ourselves. They are special. They're a cut above. They are more this, that, or the other thing than us. We do the same thing with the men of the New Testament, especially the disciples and the Apostle Paul. But all of this is actually a great error. The Bible goes to great lengths to show us these men's commonness, to show us their warts, to show us their flaws. James tells us that Elijah, he was one of the great prophets, if you want to call him that. He was a standout prophet. James tells us that he was a man 
subject to like passions as we are. Some of the events in the lives of uh, David and Moses and Abraham and Noah are shocking. You read them and you say, no, you didn't do that, did you? They surprise us. The Gospels are full of the blunders of the apostles. Things that when you read them you think, that sounds like something I would have done. Have you not ever thought that when you hear them debating who's the best? Or when you see them running all at the, in the Garden of Gethsemane? Or when you uh, see them, well, I'm not going to believe until I see... You kind of think, ah, that's something I would have done myself, which is exactly the point. The Bible was not written to exalt man, but God. There are no heroes in the Bible, but God. To make heroes out of any of the others is a grave mistake. However, it is undeniable that some incredible things are recorded in the lives of these common men. So how do we account for that? It is the power of God in a life. If we start the, the, with the idea that these men are somehow different or special, then the power of God is hidden. But if we start with the knowledge that these were all ordinary men, then the truth of the power of Christ in a life can actually be seen. We're after a real small sampling of this power this morning as we discuss through this passage of Scripture. The title of the message is The Power of Christ in a Life. The Power of Christ in a Life. Let's pray. Lord, if we had a thousand years and spent every ounce of strength that we had trying to accomplish something in this service. It could not be done. For we have no strength. We have no wisdom. We have no power. We freely admit that. We embrace that. But we fully expect something to happen. We fully expect your spirit to work. Not because we deserve it, but because the Lord Jesus already purchased it for us. And that your spirit was given to do this work. So Lord, we have the right to come expecting you to do in our lives what needs to be done. We need to be taught. We need to be changed. We need to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we're asking that your perfect work would be done, not in one heart or two, but in every heart. That no one would be able to slip through the cracks, no one would be able to ignore, but your spirit would speak boldly and loudly in each heart here today. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, who has purchased all things for us. Amen. I think the best way to proceed here on this is to give a, fair, a very quick uh, overview of the story and then go back and see what a, the power of, of Christ's life in a, 
the power of Christ in a life is able to accomplish in just an ordinary life. So let's run through the story very quickly. It's familiar to most of you, I assume. Paul and Silas are on a missionary journey. They are in the city of Philippi. There was in that city a slave girl who was demon-possessed. Her owners, the people who owned this slave girl, were using her to make lots of money by telling fortunes and predicting the future. One day, this girl starts to follow Paul and Silas. And she was yelling, I assume at the top of her lungs, These men are servants of the Most High, which show unto us the way of salvation. Now, you can imagine this would be a little disruptive and would probably get old rather quickly. But she followed them wherever they went, yelling the same thing for days. Think about how irritating that would get. If someone followed behind you all the time saying, these men are servants of the Most High of God, or make, show us the way of salvation, day in and day out. And finally, Paul, they've been ignoring it, but finally he decides, okay, enough is enough, and he turns around and commands the demon to, to leave in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very good thing for this girl, if you can imagine being possessed of a devil and being controlled by this demon. But the men who have been getting rich from all that she's been doing were not very happy about it. And so they drag Paul and Silas into the, to the city officials. And they throw all kinds of accusations against them. There's a bunch of lies, but they bring these accusations to the city officials. The crowd gets whipped up into a fury, and the city officials command that Paul and Silas be stripped of their clothes and beaten, and then send them off to prison. The jailer, who is the Philippian jailer, the jailer the Philippi, he... Uh, is given this, these instructions. Keep them safely. Now, don't make a mistake on that. This does not mean that they were telling them, keep these guys well protected. Don't let anything happen to them. That's not what he was say, they were saying. What they were saying to them is, do not let these guys escape. Now, you have to put yourself in the, in the Philippian jailer's mindset. Philippi was a Roman colony. The law of the Romans was, if you lost a prisoner, if a prisoner had been given into your charge, and you lost a prisoner, they put you to death. Now, the Romans did not put you to death quickly, ever. The Romans had ways of making you wish that you were dead. And so this would be the future of anybody who lost a prisoner. So nobody had to tell this guy, don't lose somebody. Because that's just not in the one of the options. But when they bring these two guys who've been beat to a pulp that look like they are desperate criminals, and they are told, do not lose these guys, then the Philippian jailer acts on that information. He makes sure that there is no chance of them escaping. And he takes them and puts them in what they called the inner prison, which means they were far away from the outside walls that you could get. So there'd be no chance of escape. And then he puts their feet in stocks. Do you guys know what stocks are? 
Okay, remember back in the pilgrim days, you had these two wooden boards that went like that, and they were on a hinge like that, and they had two holes cut. And they put your, they open it up, and they put your feet through there, and then they close that up, and then they put a padlock on this outside edge here. Okay, so if you're going to escape, you either have to chop your feet off, or you've got to run with this thing between your feet, if you can imagine that. And it would be fairly heavy anyway, maybe even strapped to the ground. And so you're not going anywhere. That's how they are where they're locked up. But you've got to remember, these guys have been beat to a pulp. Now, normally they would have beat you on your backside. So now they're laying on those open wounds and more than likely having to lean against the wall on those open wounds. They've had no medical attention whatsoever. They have just been cast into this prison. Now, there are no secrets in prison, and everybody knows what's, that these guys are here. Everybody knows what's going on. And at midnight, when you're expecting to hear these guys moaning and yelling and upset about what's taken place, what they hear are these two missionaries praying and singing praises to God. Now, this is an interesting thing that everybody is interested in because you don't see this very often. The jailer goes to bed. He's sound asleep. And all of a sudden, there is an earthquake. Now, this is a very targeted earthquake. Normally, okay, this says the foundation was shaken. If you shake a foundation of a building, you shake the whole building. And when you shake a building like that, what normally happens is the roof comes down and kills everybody inside. This earthquake was a targeted earthquake. The building shook, and all it did was shake the doors open and shake all the shackles off of everybody. That is an interesting earthquake. The shaking shakes the Philippian jailer, maybe out of bed, but awakes him up. He looks out, and what he sees is a bunch of open doors. And in his mind, he has one thought. Somebody, maybe everybody, is gone. Put yourself into his, his position at that moment. Now he knows what he's facing. So he grabs a sword, not to take on the prisoners, but to take his own life. Now, why would he take his own life? Because that's a much easier death than the sure death at the hands of the Romans. This is a lot quicker and easier. So he's just going to do himself in. At the very second he's ready to do that, Paul yells out, Ho, oh, oh, ho, wait, 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 don't hurt, anybody. don't hurt yourself here. Everybody is still here. He's amazed at that. He comes in and takes a look around. And sure enough, everybody is still there. And he comes trembling and kneels in front of Paul and Silas. Trembling because you know how close he was to death? He was within a hair's breadth of being dead. He's also within a hair's breadth of standing before God, knowing he's not ready. And he asks him this question, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas answer that question. They preach the gospel to them. The entire, his whole family hears the gospel and comes to Christ. The man eventually gets baptized in identification with Christ. And the story goes on to tell what, how he got out of prison. We won't get into that part of it. 
That's the story in a nutshell. Now, catch up with my notes here. Let's look at this story and let's see what can the power of God do in a life. Now you have to remember, these are two ordinary men. Paul and Silas are not somebody special. They're not super Christians. They're just two men. Like any two men in this church, like any two men in any Bible-believing church across the the, the country. These are just two regular men. Now what do we see in the lives of these two ordinary men? Number one, Christ has absolute power over the forces of evil. Christ has absolute power over the forces of evil. In Matthew chapter number 12, the Lord makes an interesting observation concerning the casting out of demons. I'll paraphrase what he says, but he says, if you're going to rob a strong man, if you're going to rob his house, you must first subdue the strong man. Now that makes sense. In this room, there are a lot of gun owners. Now, if I decide tonight to come rob your house, Heaven forbid I would slip to that, but just to say that I did. I had better first subdue you. Why? Because if I ignore you and just start robbing your house, I'm going to get shot full of holes for my trouble. Because you're not just going to stand there and let me do this. You are going to defend your property. Now, how much more would this be true in the days before firearms? Where you actually had to use physical strength in order to combat. You would must first subdue the, one, the strong person there. And if you can overpower that strong person, then you can do whatever you want with them. This is exactly what Jesus Christ did. He subdued the strong man, the devil. The second most powerful being in the universe, the devil, had his head crushed at the cross. Colossians 2.15 tells us, Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. My friend, Satan is a defeated foe. Christ has absolute power over the forces of evil. We see that in this story. This demon-possessed girl was at the bidding of this evil spirit. Was it the, the evil spirit's desire to let her go? No, he was in control and wanted to stay that way. But when Paul commands the, in the name of Jesus Christ... That spirit, that evil spirit, didn't have any options. No, Paul doesn't have any power over the devil. He doesn't 
power, Paul doesn't have power on his own. He could not bind the strong man so that he could spoil his house. Paul couldn't do that. But Jesus Christ already has. And against the name of Jesus Christ, evil has no power. Christ, number one, has absolute power over the forces of evil. Number two, the power of Christ allows us to live within justice. The power of Christ allows us to live with injustice. In our country these days, we are beginning to see some very unjust things taking place. We are finding that there are two sets of rules by which people live. Rules for themselves, and then rules for which the people that they disagree with. Now, as Americans, this is a little shocking to us. Now, it may have been this way for a long time, but now it's becoming open and blatant. But the fact of the matter is, for God's people, it's always been this way. The treatment that Paul and Silas received from the city officials was totally illegal. You realize that? We are told that later in the passage. What happened to Apostle Paul and to Silas was totally illegal. They had been beaten without a trial, and they had been thrown in prison without being condemned. This is a serious violation of Roman law. Now, they were afraid, that's what the, 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 the guys who were complaining about them, the Romans are going to come and take away our place. But here, these guys, in response to this, violate egregiously the Roman law. Now, try to put yourself in Paul and Silas's position. What would your natural reaction be in such a case where you've had your civil rights violated? What would your reaction be? If somebody just grabbed you, to, grabbed you today, hauled you off to prison, and beat the daylights out of you. These are just ordinary men. But the power of Christ allows us to live with injustice. These men were violated totally contrary to the law. And yet they were able to live with this injustice. But it was more than that, which leads us into point number three. The power of Christ enables us to rejoice in difficulty. The power of Christ enables us to rejoice in difficulty. Put yourself in Paul and Silas's position. Here you are, you're minding your own business, right? And this girl starts following you. And for days she's been following you. You've just been ignoring her. So finally you do her a good deed by eliminating the demon that's controlling her life. And the next thing you know, you're being accused of things that you didn't do. You are beaten and sent to prison without trial. Totally contrary to the law. You've been roughly handled by a jailer who could care less. Your legs are in stocks. Your back is raw and bleeding without any medical attention. Now, don't be all pious here right now. Be realistic. What would your attitude be? 
You've been beat to a pulp, totally unjustly. You've been roughly handled against the law. And now you're laying there bleeding on a rough stone thing with, with wood stocks over your legs. What would your attitude be? What would your response be? Can you see yourself doing a little grumbling, complaining, pitying yourself? Can you see yourself letting your aches and pains consume every thought that you have? Can you see, see yourself plotting revenge, having hatred or anger? The fact of the matter is, all of those would be typical, understandable, even excusable responses. But it doesn't have to be your response. Paul and Silas are no different than you. But in the power of Christ, they sit there with very difficult circumstances and they are rejoicing in the Lord, praying and singing at midnight. This is not some superhero response. This is the power of Christ in a life. And you, my friend, have access to that same power. The power of Christ enables us to rejoice in whatever difficulty we face. Number four. The power of Christ allows us to react properly to any situation. The power of Christ allows us to react properly to any situation. Our ministry at Meyer Hall ended with COVID. I learned a lot from there, and it's actually the only real experience that I ever had with prison at all, uh, was being a chaplain there at Meyer Hall. I don't suppose that there is much <coughs> correlation between Meyer Hall and the jail at Philippi. I don't think that we're probably talking apples for apples here. Uh, if you were at Meyer Hall, um, if they, somebody just dropped you in there, you would probably think that you were in some kind of a business office. It's well lit, well carpeted. It's a very nice building, actually. And so uh, you would probably not know that you were even in a facility and, unless you came through the front door. The place is air-conditioned. The food is decent. The medical attention is first-notch. The people who were working there actually really cared for the, the young people, most of them. And so, compared to the jail at Philippi, it'd be more like the Marriott. It's really what the, it would be like. That'd be about the difference. So there's very few things that overlap, that, that go together between the two. But there is one major thing. Man was not meant to be in a box. The desire to escape from a cage is innate. I talked with one kid there. He told me he wasn't there very long. He said, I looked out my window and there, were a, there was a tree limb and there were three leaves on this tree limb. He said, that's all I could see on the outside. I sat there and watched it. And one day the wind blew one of the leaves off and he, about, he said, it about killed me. Because I, I lost that one leaf. I was sitting in the atrium one day. There's three wings coming off each wing. They, they all come onto this one area. And I was sitting in there. And 
the doors have a very distinct sound to them. The doors open onto the, into this atrium, and when they open, you can hear them, and as they would close, you could hear them. They have a distinctive click as they lock back in place. And so I was sitting there with my back to the door, and I heard the door open, and I heard it swinging back close, but the click never happened. And you know how your mind is expecting something, even subconsciously, and so I turned just in time to see an arm go like this to keep that door from closing. A kid was trying to escape. Now, you have to understand, he's four locked doors more before he gets outside. This was a really dumb idea for him because now he's facing charges of trying, attempted escape. Immediately the staff was, boom, all right there. I mean, there was... But in the, the thought process of, I've got to get out of here, is innate with all of us. Does it make sense to you? Now, if a kid who is in a place like the Marriott Hotel almost, in comparison, has the desire to escape, what do you suppose these guys sitting at the jail at Philpi are feeling? You've got to know, get out of here. So the earthquake happens. All the locks are open. All the chains are off. Everybody's free. Now, we do have another story in the scriptures where this almost exact same thing happens to Peter. He's locked between two, people, two, two guards. He's all the way in the prison. And all of a sudden, the, guard, the, the chains fall off. The doors all open up. And the angel leads him out. And he leaves the prison. So Peter or Paul could have said, you know what? I know what to do here. Let's run. And yet, that was not the proper response. It is in our nature to say, I got this handled. Because this is the way I always handled this situation. Or I know what to do because I've run across this before. Or this is what so-and-so did in the same situation. So that's what I'm going to do. That's not how the power of Christ works. The power of Christ enables you to do exactly what you ought to do in any given situation. In this situation, even though their urge was in more than likely, let's get out of here, the power of Christ allows them to stay right there because there's work that has to be done. And it is the power of Christ that allows us to react properly in any and every situation. Our response to our situations that we face should not have been, been there, done that, or this is how I always handle the situation, or this is what so-and-so did in a similar situation. The power of Christ allows us to react as we should in any situation, even though our urges and our natural desires may be in the opposite direction. The power of Christ allows us to do what we should in any given situation. Number five, the power of Christ enables us to not be bitter or hold grudges. The power of Christ enables us to not be bitter or hold grudges. I suppose it shouldn't surprise me, but it does how many of God's people hold grudges against somebody 
or allow bitterness in their hearts. I'm not talking about unknown bitternesses or grudges. Those can slip in and they have to be dealt with. But I'm talking about known bitterness and grudges. Somebody wronged you and you are still holding on to that. But consider the Paul and Silas. Here this Philippian jailer has taken them into custody. Does he check the legality of this arrest? He don't care. He's been given a charge, so he takes him. Do you suppose he was super nice as he takes him back into the prison? I think you can fairly safe to assume that he was fairly rough. I'm guessing that he probably threw them down on the ground. I'm guessing that he used a little choice language, and there was probably a few boot kicks in there in some of the places. They have totally mishandled Paul and Silas. Now, is there any grudges or bitterness within them? Think about that jailer when he's got the sword and he's going to kill himself. Would it not have been easy for Paul to say, well, that's what he gets for being a Roman guard. Serves him right for that good kick he gave. Would it not have been just as easy to keep his mouth shut? And in a split second, he doesn't have time to to just dilly-dally here, okay? This guy's going to kill himself. And then Paul has one second to stop him. And he stops him and says, whoa, 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 don't do that. A man who has bitterness and grudges in his heart isn't going to have the ability to do that. Is this because Paul and Silas were such super Christians? No, my friend. It is the power of Christ in a life. You have access to that same power. You do not have to live with grudges and bitterness. No matter what anybody has done to you, you do not have to live that way. They may have had lots of reasons to be upset with this jailer. But there was no bitterness, no grudges. These aren't super Christians, but people just like you. The power of Christ freed them from bitterness and grudges, and it can free you as well. The power of Christ enables us to live without bitterness and grudges. Number six, the power of Christ allows us to witness when we should. The power of Christ allows us to witness when we should. Before we explore this point, let me make a, a quick aside, take a quick aside here. The jailer asks a very typical but very bad question of these missionaries. The question that the jailer asks is, what must I do to be saved? This is almost always the question that man asks. It stems from his desire to earn heaven. What do I have to do to get in? Maybe you're sitting here today asking the same question. Well, let me ask you this. If God had your book, our bo actually all of our deeds, all of our life is written down in a book. God has this recorded. If this morning God picked up your book and started reading it, how many pages of your life would he have to read through before he just put it down and said, you're kidding, right? You went into heaven? How many pages would he have to read? Would he get by the first page or the second page before you'd say, 
this just isn't going to happen. Look, we want to do, we, we understand that we say, boy, we are falling short. We have done a lot of things that we're, we just can't get into heaven for. We, we understand that. So what do we do to clean this mess up? That's the whole wrong thought process. Because there is nothing you can do. The standard of heaven is not to be better than you were. Or to be better than the next guy. Or to be better than the average. That's not the standard for heaven. The standard for heaven is perfection. And you blew that with your very first sin. That's all there is to it. What must you do? You had to be perfect, and you didn't do that. So you're done. The question is not, what must I do to be saved? What needed to be done has already been done. Jesus Christ did it. The answer that the apostle gave was accurate. He didn't say, well, let's go do these things. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to believe that Jesus Christ came to this earth. He lived here a perfect, spirit-filled man. He never sinned once. He took our sins upon himself and died on the cross in our place. He was buried and he rose again from the dead because he had no sin. And our, he paid our sin debt. He rose from the dead. What needed to be done has been done by Jesus Christ. And the apostle said, you want to go to heaven, that's how you get in. It's what, not what you do, but what he already did, trusting what he did. You take him as your savior. You take what he did as your righteousness. This is how a person gets to heaven. If you sit here today and you say, I don't know if I'm on my way to heaven or not, I would beg of you, I would urge you today, put your trust in Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do to get there. You've already done enough. That's what's sending you to hell. But what Jesus did is enough. And you put your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I would urge you this morning, there is no reason to wait on this. There's nothing to be gained by postponing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But if we go back to our point, the power of Christ enables us to witness when we should. What, did, what were Paul and Silas doing, dealing with at that moment? Pain, injuries, the plans, you know, morning is coming and these city officials who threw them there have plans for them, right? You've got to wonder, what are these plans? If they did this to us yesterday, what are they going to do to us today? So that's on their mind. They've just been through an earthquake. We kind of overlook that little fact. If you had just been through an earthquake, what would your state of mind be at this moment? <laughs> Can you put yourself there? Wow, that was, you'd be so consumed with the earthquake and making sure that your junk was all all right or whatever. Do you, do you see? They had a lot on their plate at this moment. Their own difficulties. They're no different than you. If you were through an earthquake, you'd have a few things on your mind. If you had just been thrown into prison and were all locked up, you'd have a few things on your mind. If your back was beat to a, to a pulp, you'd have a few things on your mind. They're no different than you. 
But the power of Christ in a life allows you to witness when you should. Not, I got to get to that one of these days. But when the situation arises, it's the power of Christ that allows you to put all those things aside and give the gospel when the gospel is needed. They gave the gospel not because they were super Christians, but because the power of Christ enables us to witness when we should, and we can live in that power. And number seven, and we're done here, the power of Christ changes a life. The power of Christ changes a life. Let's get real basic here. We might be struggling mentally to not put the Apostle Paul up on some pedestal because the whole world has been doing that. And so our mind tends to gravitate that way. But do you have any of those such thoughts of the Philippian jailer? That the Philippian jailer was some kind of super Christian. You have no thoughts in that direction. But what do we see in him? We see in the Philippian jailer an immediate change. No longer is he cruel and merciless. Now he's caring. Now he's concerned about his family. Now he's concerned about spiritual things. Now he's willing to publicly identify with the person of Jesus Christ. He gets baptized. You've got to think outside the box on this for many of us. In the United States, getting baptized means almost nothing as far as our culture goes. You hear about people getting baptized, you don't think anything about it. It's no big deal one way or the other. People don't care. But in a foreign country, especially at the time period we're talking about, to get baptized was to identify with the person of Jesus Christ, and it almost assuredly guaranteed persecution. It guaranteed a real rough time with the public from now on, a real rough time with your family from now on. It was a public identification with someone who was hated. This Philippian jailer, he's no super Christian. The power of Christ in a life changes that life. And immediately, he's willing to identify with the person. Hello. That was the live stream, people. <laughs> he's immediately ready to identify with the person of Jesus Christ. Lots of God's people have gotten satisfied with the status quo. I am where I am. I move a little, I don't move a little. But my friends, the power of Christ changes a life. That is the intention. And every day we ought to see ourselves being changed because of Christ within us. He enables us to do all of these things. There aren't any super Christians. There aren't any cut above people. We're all just ordinary people. But the life of Christ within, that power changes makes us what we're supposed to be and do. It is 
the power of the life of